like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the minor prophet Amos. And if you can find the big prophet Ezekiel, it goes Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So if you can find Amos chapter 4, verses 4 to 13. And the text begins with a stinging irony about the sacred shrine of the northern kingdom located at the city of Bethel. So follow along with me as I read Amos chapter 4, verses 4 to 13. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings, publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, says the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. And I also withheld the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain upon the city, and send rain on, not send rain on another city. One field would be rained upon, and the field on which it did not rain withered. So two or three cities wandered to one city to drink water, and were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I smote you with blight and mildew. I laid waste your gardens and your vineyards. Your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men with the sword. I carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For lo, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Hosea was not a well-to-do man. He was a shepherd from Tekoa, which was about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem. He lived 800 years before Jesus, and his main ministry was directed to the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom where he grew up. The center of uh, worship in the northern kingdom had become Bethel, and it was a cult city full of corruption. Jeroboam, who had split off and led ten tribes away from the two in the south to the north, had established Bethel as the center of his worship and had created golden calves, his own priesthood, new holy days, and a holy place. That place that centuries earlier had been so precious to Abraham and then Jacob called Bethel, the house of God, a meeting place, had become foul with idolatrous worship. And God called Amos to go up to Bethel and to cry against it. 
right in the middle of all that corruption. Chapter 4 of his prophecy is one of the messages that he brought against Bethel. Verse 4, like Tom said, is stinging irony. Come to Bethel and transgress. He's probably mocking the official uh, word that goes out to all the people to come and, and do their worship. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of what is leavened and proclaim free will offerings and publish them for so you love to do. Meaning, this is real religious people. They come, they tithe, they advertise free will offerings, they sacrifice, and they, in doing all of that, multiply transgression. The church building is full of sin in Bethel. Their idolatry betrays them. So does their lifestyle. Look at verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. So clear implication is that there's just a lot of wealth, a lot of indifference to needs. You oppress and crush the needy. So Israel comes to meet God at Bethel with lives that are dirty and in a worship form that has lost the truth. And therefore, one way that they should be preparing to meet their God is to stop doing that. They ought to repent and clean up their lives as they come to worship. And they ought to come to worship in truth not idolatry and falsehood. Now, he leaves behind the irony in verses 6 to 11 and gets very specific about God's five times that he has come to them to warn them to return. And five times they have not heard or come. Let's just rehearse each one. Verse 6, God had sent famine, lack of bread in all their places, cleanness of teeth, nothing there. They hadn't eaten anything. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verses 7 and 8, he sent drought, no rain. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, blight and mildew and locust. Yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, Pestilence and sword, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew some of them like Sodom and plucked them like a brand from the fire, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Now, what was he doing? What's going on here? God was blocking Israel again and again and again. Over in Hosea, it says he was hedging them in, cutting them off in their plummet to destruction. It is a glorious, gracious thing when you are starting to find happiness on the way away from God. And the, the most gracious thing, I said that wrong a minute ago, it's not a gracious thing when you find happiness, it's gracious when he cuts you off in your finding happiness. So if you're on your way away from God like they were, and God cuts you off, 
with famine, that's grace. He was stopping them again and again in their plummet toward destruction in trying to find happiness going away from God. And then comes his last word in verse 12. It's too late. Judgment is coming. Maybe not too late for individuals. Therefore, that is, since you have refused to return these five times, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. So judgment is coming. Prepare for it. Get ready. Prepare to meet your God. If you would not prepare to meet me in holiness at Bethel, at least prepare to meet me in judgment at the last day. That's the point of that verse, I think. If you would not prepare to meet me in holiness at Bethel, prepare to meet me in judgment at the last day. So here's my point in the message this morning. When we come to meet God, whether it's in worship at Bethlehem or in judgment at the last day, we ought to prepare. We ought to prepare to meet God. Let me summarize four ways that I see in this text that you and I should prepare to meet God today. Number one, you should find a a worshiping community, a church, which above all cherishes the truth. So if you're looking for a church and you wonder where you should meet God, right at the top of your criteria should be, do they love and honor the truth? Which translates, do they love the Bible? Is the Bible shot through all they do? Or is it just on a table somewhere? Do the sermons ooze Bible? Is Bible woven through their music? Do they follow the Bible in the way they structure their church? Do people in classes seem to be interested in the Bible? Are the people and the leadership under the Bible? That's what you should look for first in your preparation for finding a place where you can worship properly. They were looking for worship and they found it at Bethel with idols and phoniness. Number two, renounce all known sin in your life before coming to worship God. These wealthy people in Israel made love with their true husband while having a mistress on the side. That is, they worshiped God while loving sin. Same difference. Don't do that. God, in infinite holiness, will reach out and embrace the foulest, dirtiest, hardest sinner you can imagine in this service on Sunday morning. If you come broken, Forsaking known sin and trusting Jesus for cleansing. Let me say that again. That's so important. God in his infinite holiness 
will embrace the dirtiest sinner in this service on Sunday morning who comes broken and forsaking known sin and trusting Jesus for cleansing. But God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked by people who put on their religious Sunday face, sing their hymns, bow in prayer, and crush the poor on Monday. He will not be mocked. Now, can you handle both of those? One is the most precious, tender, inviting word that God embraces broken sinners And the other is a word of warning that God will not be mocked in his justice and holiness. Therefore, we ought to prepare not only by finding a church where truth is exalted, but by leaving our sins behind and renouncing them and pleading the mercy of Christ as we enter into worship. And he will not turn you away. Number three. Take note of how God has been trying to get your attention during the week. It just amazes me that in this text, five times it says, yet you did not return to me, 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 yet you did not return to me. And leading up to that, in every case, was something that in our Western, secular, scientific materialistic, naturalistic way of viewing the world, nobody would have interpreted as a word from God to return. Famine, drought, war, pestilence. Where's God? In fact, most people today, when they see that, say, God's not there. Right? He's gone. Where's God? And God's saying, that's my voice. Come to me, Bangladesh. Come to me. Wake up! I'm powerful! Now, I just want to say, in getting ready for worship, look for the voice of God in your life. We are very naturalistic people. We have absorbed our culture pretty strongly, haven't we? And therefore, we look at the circumstances of our lives and we understand almost everything in terms of natural causes. And we're very poor interpreters of the living God. I'm not good at it. Now, I think God was saying to me in this text, that's why I'm sort of emphasizing it right now, Piper, you need to read your life better. You need to hear me better. Hear me. See me. Listen to me. I'm talking to you in what happens to you during the day. Note right here, I'm going to refer to it in a minute, the voice of God right here that came to me between services. Or take the Wednesday night service two weeks ago, week and a half, whatever, Wednesday night a week ago. God was moving that night, and I didn't see it for the most part. Four people, one so moved they wanted to make an appointment with me, four people came to me and told me what God did that night in their lives. And I went home discouraged, I didn't see it. Isn't that strange? What's the matter with me? In preparing for worship, look at your week and say, Lord, 
opened my eyes. What have you been saying to me this week? What are you trying to do in my life? What's this mean? I mean everything. Tests, you know, and hardships and finances and who knows what else. Just ask, God, what are you saying? And I know one thing he's always saying. One thing he's always saying. Return to me. Return to me. He's, I got, he's got other things to say, but he's least saying that in every, everything he does. Here's my fourth way of preparing that I see in this text. Namely, draw near to God with your heart or return to God in your heart. Five times you did not return to me, implying the way to meet me would be to return and draw near to me. Now, when he said that five times, he did not mean uh, come to Bethel more often. Or he didn't mean go to Jerusalem instead of coming to Bethel. Jerusalem's where you ought to worship. He didn't mean that. The return to God is not a geographical phenomenon. You cannot measure the movement from far from God to God in miles, inches, or millimeters. You can't do it. It's not that kind of movement. The movement of the heart. Jesus said, with their lips they honor me, their heart is far from me. And every time I do this gesture, I say, nope, that's not right. See, that's about six feet there. That's not right. You can't do anything. The heart is not anywhere. The heart doesn't move a millimeter on its way to God. It is a spiritual transaction. The tape measure that you can use to measure where you are from God and the intimacy where God wants you to be with him is the tape measure of attention. Are you attending to God? A focus. Are you focusing on God? A delight, desire, hope, trust, savoring. Those are the measuring rods where we assess where's my heart. In relation to where God is. And so we prepare to worship by drawing near to God by our hearts. By our hearts. Now, what I want to do to close the, the message is to, is to lay on the table about six practical suggestions for how to prepare for worship. Let me give you some assumptions before I do that. I assume, number one, that... We are here in this room right now and every Sunday morning to meet God. Personally, directly, earnestly, to meet God. You ought to be here to meet God. That's the agenda. My second assumption is that that's hard. And that uh, most people aren't used to doing that. And it takes some training and some preparation and some discipline. And my third assumption is most of us grew up in churches where this was not a premium. What I, what I mean was not a premium is a sustained, focused, undistracted communion with the living God is what the Sunday morning service is about. Most of us grew up in churches where that was not the case. And therefore, many of you uh, don't even know what I'm talking about. Let me give you an illustration, see if I can help you understand. I was at a worship service recently, not in a church. It was a kind of ad hoc thing. And we were being led, and uh, there was a pianist who was quite accomplished, and he was, he was leading us in a hymn. And most of us were in it, in God. I, I could tell by the spirit of the singing that that... 
we were worshiping the Lord. We were communing with the living God. We were not performing a hymn. We were engaged with God. And there was another act of worship that was to follow that one, sustaining our presence with God. And as the hymn ended, the leader looked over to the pianist and looked at us, those of us who had our eyes open, and said, this is living proof that all men are not created equal. And a few people chortled politely. It was clearly intended to be funny. He plays well, and none of you can play like that. This is living proof. And then he tried to pull us back into the presence of God. That is the kind of church I grew up in. No sense. I was in the presence of God. I was singing to God. I was communing with the living God and I wanted to stay there. Why you tell me a joke? Why did you break it? Why did you intrude? You could have done it so well by just prayerfully leading us on. I'll give you another illustration. Leah played and uh, my job this morning was to read for you Psalm 42, 1 to 5 as a heart longs for the flowing springs. Now, I consciously make the choice when I walk up to this pulpit not to look at you and say, I'm now going to read Psalm 42, 1 to 5, and then start reading it. I don't do that. And I very consciously don't do that. It's an attempt to say, don't change what you're doing right now. Leah has led you into worship. You are there communing with the living God. Hope. I know it's not true for some, that's why I'm preaching this sermon. You are communing with the living God, and my job is not to get in your way, but to be another vehicle. And here I just have to say, we're not perfect. And we don't do this perfectly. I'm sure there are often times you're sitting there feeling, I wish they hadn't done it quite that way, or something like that. And I admit that. But we know that we have something very precious to preserve in uh, sustained, undistracted communion with the living God. Eleven years now. I have eleven years of experience in that old sanctuary with going hard after God with many of you. And hundreds of people have testified as they joined the church or spoken to me or wrote to me letters. Written to me letters. Hundreds of people have testified that that kind of sustained, God-centered, focused, personal, earnest, going hard after God, unbroken by human intrusion, has changed their lives. Hundreds. And therefore, even though I know we're not perfect, even though I know things can change and we have much to learn, I know something precious that I don't want to lose in this new century. And that is a sustained, God-centered, passionate pursuit of personal communion with the living God every moment we're in this building. It affects the way I do my welcome to worship. 
I know that that could be interpreted as an intrusion, but I also sense that that personal dimension can be done in a way that too can get people to God. At least I do my best. Now here are my practical suggestions. Number one, set aside some time on Saturday night to begin to orient yourself on God for worship tomorrow morning. Set aside a few minutes on Saturday night. Please, turn the television off. Plenty of time ahead. That's not getting you ready. Turn the television off. Open the Bible for a few minutes. Say, Lord, pray for Pastor John. He's probably putting the last efforts on his spiritual preparation tonight. At least it's before 10.30. Um, Pray for our people. Bring visitors. Just whatever the Lord leads. Pray. Get yourself ready. Second suggestion. Go to bed early enough Saturday night so that you have emotional life and resources in the morning for this tremendously important engagement with God. You see, our culture has basically created the impression Saturday night is for lateness. It's for late movies, and it's for late parties. And I can promise you that the price you will pay for late movies and late parties is powerless worship. And so I just ask you, contrary to your culture, to think through your priorities. What do you want to happen in this room, in your life? What do you want? You want to be entertained? You want to sit there and just say, let the show begin? Or do you want to meet God? Be changed by God? And if you do, it'll affect when you go to bed, Saturday night. My suggestion number three is to get up in time on Sunday morning so you don't have to rush to get here. But have a few minutes to settle with God. Settle. To settle with God. Now, some people have personalities that are chronically late. I'm sure dissertations have been written about these people. It doesn't matter when they set their alarm, they're late for, for every engagement. I have a word to those people. I think it's possible to create the truth in your brain that this service starts 15 minutes before you think it does. It does, you know. It does. It starts 15 minutes before you think it does. So believe that. Fourth, when you come into the sanctuary, seek the Lord directly and personally. Now that means, and this service needs this more than the first service because for some reason this is a more bustly, hustly, noisy group. It means that there will be a holy quietness across this service during the prelude. If you do, if you accept my exhortation right now, namely to begin to seek the Lord when you when you walk in. And I want to I want to clarify the kind of stillness we're talking about. We all know deep in our hearts there's a difference between a holy stillness that is passionately pursuing God and an awkward quietness at the beginning of the Sunday school class when people are supposed to be milling around being nice to each other and nobody's saying anything and it feels awful. We know the difference. We do. 
You know the difference. There are different kinds of quietness. And the quietness I'm pleading for is not a quietness where you sit there and say, when's this show going to begin? Or talk while it's wait for the show to begin. But while you go onto your face and say, God, I need you. God, come. God, bring power. You know, the point is not when it comes to uh, making an impact on the people around us, whether we're perceived to be pious or friendly. It's not the point. The point is power. Do you want power on this service? Do you want God to come down and shake the foundations of the building? Do you want bodies to be healed, souls to be saved, marriages to be made whole, people to be freed of bondages, Satan to be cast out? Is that what you want while you sit there and chat? What do you want in this service? That's the issue. That's the issue. Do we want power? Power. Power. I want power in your life. Changed lives. I want God to come down radically, differently than we have seen Him come. Let me give you a suggestion for how to make friends or better how to deepen friendship during the prayer. You walk in with a friend and you're talking, having a good time. Great. Precious thing. You sit down and the prelude begins. Here's a, here's a sentence I suggest you use. Turn to your friend and you say, when we finish this discussion right after the service, I think John needs our prayers. Let's pray for him. Let's do battle 